Uh, well, good morning, St Andrews. Uh, you may have noticed that it's not as warm looking uh, here uh, in the church building this morning. That's because we've actually got no power at the moment as I record this. And so we've used some lights that are plugged into an extension lead. Um, but it is exciting that the building is getting close to being finished. Well, let's pray as we begin. Uh, Father, I thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity to open it together now. Please help uh, me as I explain it and help us as we understand it this morning. Amen. Well, uh, when I was quite a bit younger and before a whole bunch of uh, restrictions had come into place, I got the opportunity to visit the cockpit of a, uh, of a plane uh, I was flying in. And normally when you're flying on a plane, you sit back and relax and you uh, experience uh, whatever the flight has in for you. Uh, but you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Going into the cockpit, I was overwhelmed by the number of buttons and lights and controls and the pilot who obviously knew how to fly the thing. Uh, normally you don't see that, but behind the scenes, there's a lot more going on than you think. And in this part of Daniel today, we get a look behind the scenes of our world. Now, chapters uh, 10 to 12 in Daniel, uh, they are actually all part of one big vision that Daniel has. Today, we're looking at a part of chapter 10 and uh, parts of chapter 11. And next week, we'll look at chapter 12, uh, which is the end of the message. And so far in Daniel, we've seen lots of uh, dreams and visions, and they've really given us pictures of what is going on in our world. You might remember the, the statue made out of all sorts of materials that represented different worldly kingdoms, or the beasts that represented kingdoms or, or rulers. But in chapter 10 today, we see a little bit more about what's going on in the unseen world. So we're going to look today at, uh, firstly, the battle that we don't see. Uh, then secondly, the battle that we do see. That's chapter 11. And then living in the light of the unseen. So in chapter 10, as we begin, Daniel gets an answer from God about the future. It comes uh, in the form of a vision as the curtain on reality is, is pulled back. And it's, it's overwhelming for Daniel from the very start, like a, a shock of lightning that gets you out of the blue uh, when you didn't know there was even a storm. Have a look there at, at verse four. As I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man. And what Daniel sees is a pretty awesome man, an extremely amazing man. Look at him in verse five, he's dressed in linen, a belt of gold, body of topaz, face like lightning, eyes uh, like flaming torches, arms and legs of burnished bronze, a voice like that of a multitude. The people who are with Daniel can't see the vision itself, but they are full of terror and run and hide. So they must've got some sense of the power associated with what Daniel's seeing. The man is, is not identified, but he is awesome in the most literal sense. And Daniel is stunned. Have a look in, in verse nine, when the man starts speaking, Daniel basically spontaneously faints. And indeed the whole experience is overwhelming for Daniel. 
Um, in verse 15, he's speechless. He says in verse 16, I'm overcome with ang- anguish. My strength is gone and I cannot breathe. And that's what he says in verse 17. And so what Daniel sees is, is very overwhelming for him. It's frightening. And yet we find it's for his good. Look at these, these details uh, in the description of what Daniel sees. Three times Daniel is, is touched and comforted. Twice he's told to fear not. Twice he's referred to as greatly loved. And this whole vision, this has come in response to Daniel's fervent prayer. So when the curtain is pulled back, when Daniel sees behind the scenes, what does he see? Well, he sees something terrifyingly awesome. But the powerful man, the angelic messenger, they are kind to Daniel. They are on his side. Awesome, but good. And this chapter tells us more uh, than just the uh, awe-inspiring existence of this unseen realm. It, it gives us an insight into what's going on there. And what's going on there is, is a battle. Um, we've already seen again and again conflict in Daniel's world. We've seen conflict between uh, God's people in Babylon who've been exiled there and the culture around them. Uh, we've seen the incident of the, of the den of lions and the furnace where God's people uh, resisted uh, the um, uh, temptation to bow down and worship Babylonian rulers. And we've seen prophecies of, of, of worldly conflict in the future too visions and dreams that have shown us destructions of kingdoms, topplings of kings. And there've been dire predictions about the ongoing suffering for God's people in the years to come. So these visions, these dreams, what we've seen so far in Daniel have been about things happening in this seen world. But this vision gives us an insight into what's going on in parallel at the same time in the unseen world. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. The messenger um, speaking to Daniel here, who, who seems to be a different character to the man that Daniel sees at the start. Well, he tells the story of his journey to bring an answer to Daniel. Since the first uh, day that Daniel's been fasting and praying, this messenger has been making his way to Daniel, but he was detained by the prince of the Persian kingdom. The prince of the Persian kingdom. So there are opposing forces in this unseen world too. Um, and then a, a character called Michael comes to the aid of the first messenger and lets him make it all the way to Daniel. Look ahead then to verse 20, uh, where the messenger says, well, soon I will return to fight against the Prince of Persia, going back to, to where he was. And when I go, the Prince of Greece will come. In the seen world, the Persian kingdom was followed by Alexander and the Greek empire. In the unseen world, this messenger is fighting against the princes of those empires. We'll go a little further into verse 21, where we hear of a battle raging as uh, Darius the Mede comes to power. On the outside, we see a a new pagan ruler uh, taking over the rule. But behind the curtain, God's agents are battling against a malevolent force connected somehow with that ruler. What actually lies behind that rule is opposition to God and his good purposes. That's what's going on. But what are these these forces of evil? 
Well, the Bible um, tells us of unseen personal evil beings. Now, the primary one is called Satan or the devil. He appears uh, back at the beginning of the Bible where he's the serpent who first tempts humanity to distrust God's word and rebel against him. He's a, a fairly shadowy figure throughout the Old Testament, but he's certainly there. And Jesus is confronted by Satan at the beginning of his ministry uh, when Satan tempts Jesus, but Jesus stands firm. The Bible presents these uh, beings, Satan and his minions, as real, but no match for God and his power. Satan and the, the demonic beings are creatures who are subject to God's sovereign will. So here behind the curtain in the unseen realm, we have evil forces uh, actually behind the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of Greece. Whether the prince of these kingdoms is Satan himself or one of the minions, it's, it's unclear. Now, I don't know what you make of all of that. It's pretty foreign, uh, this kind of language to us, pretty surprising. It's not often that we get the curtain drawn back in this way. It wasn't normal even for, for Daniel to see this kind of thing either. I wonder if this, uh, this unseen realm, uh, it's something that we're so unaccustomed to in our kind of modern Western way of thinking that it's easy to think that actually nothing's going on at all. Battling angels, that seems pretty radical, um, but I know I don't even give enough thought to uh, even the, the foundational um, happenings of the unseen world, like an awareness that the Lord Jesus is with the Father right now, even though he's unseen, that the Holy Spirit is working in our world, in me, in his church, though we can't see him. That prayer actually matters, actually has an impact. Well, we'll say more about the unseen realm, but for now, uh, we get to the whole reason that this messenger is speaking to Daniel at all. He comes with a message and the message is about what to expect in the seen world. So here we are, point to the battle that we do see. There are unseen beings battling, but what's the experienced reality? Well, that's what this message describes. Uh, it describes what's still in the future from Daniel's perspective. It gives, well, a focused and detailed description of what's in store for God's people. As the, uh, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonian Empire uh, back in uh, the 6th century BC, the Israelites who'd been exiled there to Babylon were allowed to return to Jerusalem. But that return is not the glorious homecoming that they anticipated. Now, we won't uh, pick up chapter 11 in detail until we get to verse 21, but let me just give you a summary of the first half of the chapter. Uh, this first half of the chapter is a, a focused description, really, on what's happening to God's people between the 6th century and the 2nd century in Jerusalem. It's a focused des description because it ignores large swathes of world history and uh, uh, other kingdoms that aren't related to God's people, um, but focuses on, on, I guess, that geographic re region with God's people nestled in that little pocket in the Middle East uh, between two powerful 
kingdoms, the, king, uh, the kings of the north, that is the Seleucid dynasty, and the south, uh, the Ptolemy rulers of Egypt. So it's a focused description. It's also really accurate. It describes with impressive accuracy rulers and relationships and events. Here's one example. Uh, verse 17 says that the king of the north will give the king of the south a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. This describes a, uh, a marriage that was hoped would form an alliance uh, in, in cryptic language, but it points uh, to something that's identifiable historically. Uh, you might have heard of Cleopatra. Uh, she became the ruler of Egypt after her husband died and ended up not siding with her father in the north. And you can find links to lots of different characters and events through the history in those verses. The overview though, is this. As the Greek empire rises for the first 130 years, the south dominates. For the next 130 years, the north dominates and there's trouble for the Jewish people in Jerusalem. God's little people in the middle are pretty much the meat in the sandwich during this time, being ruled by whoever is dominant. But now we focus on the second half of chapter 11, where a particular character comes to the fore. Have a look there at, at verse 21, uh, where we hear of a contemptible person coming to power. Uh, the subsequent description of the actions of this character uh, make it uh, pretty easy to tie him to Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who we've talked about in previous weeks, a Seleucid ruler, king of the north, uh, who seems to have been referred to in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Here are some features of um, his reign that we see in this section. Um, he came to power in about 170 BC as king in the northern kingdom, battles against the king of the south. Uh, he manipulates the circumstances to depose the, uh, the high priest, Ananias III, and have someone else put in his place. That's probably what's being talked about in verse 22. In verse 28, we see that his heart was set against the Holy Covenant. And in verse 30, that he vents his fury against the Holy Covenant, that is God's people. And he certainly did that. Uh, he did some horrible things in Jerusalem that we learn more detail about from other sources. Uh, he had a fortress erected near the temple so he could keep an eye on things. He looted the temple to fund his campaigns. He stopped the daily sacrifices at the temple in 167 BC. He attacked Jewish people on the Sabbath uh, when they, they wouldn't fight back. He sacrificed a pig on the altar, an animal that the Jews considered unclean. In verse 31, he sets up the abomination that causes desolation, uh, which was probably a, a statue representing the Syrian version of the, of the god Zeus. And he killed and tortured many Israelites. Why the focus on this guy? He's a relatively small character on the, the historical stage. Um, you may have heard of Alexander the Great. You, you might have heard of Cleopatra, but I, I expect less people have heard of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He gets this focus because unlike the other rulers, or perhaps magnifying the other rulers, he has a particularly devastating influence on God's people and systematically oppressed them and attacked the temple. 
It was great and terrible suffering for God's people. And that's what happened in the second century BC. So why does Daniel see all this in great detail? Well, for Daniel standing outside, uh, I guess, the most intense persecution before it begins, it shows him not to be surprised when persecution does come and to not set his heart on, on comfort, but rather trusting his God, whatever the circumstances, uh, trusting him to fulfil his promise. For God's people reading this letter, uh, perhaps at the height of persecution, it shows them that God knows the detail of what they're going through and that it will come to an end. There's a phrase that's repeated throughout this part of the chapter that we read, the appointed time. I wonder if you saw it. It's there in verse 27, an end will come to the two kings at an appointed time. It's there in verse 29, it's the appointed time at which the king will invade. It's there in verse 35, it's at the appointed time that the end will come. See, it's a sobering picture of the future for God's people, but it's one that's still infused with hope. Because somehow, in some way, all that's happening has been appointed. God is in control. He is good, even when we don't know how. There's more to this battle that we see. Because while it's pretty clear in verses 21 to 35 that we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, it becomes less clear after that who we're referring to. Now, there's no clear indication in the text we're talking about someone else from verse 36. And it does sound like someone as evil as Antiochus, but some details just don't match up. Uh, for instance, it says a king who will exalt himself above every god, but Antiochus seemed to keep respecting his own gods, like, like uh, the Syrian version of Zeus. Or in verse 45, it says that... Uh, the king comes to an end near the holy mountain in Israel. But from other sources, we know that Antiochus Epiphanes uh, died in Syria. It's for, for this reason and for, uh, for uh, it's for this reason that some argue that this book was actually written at the, in the second century, uh, relating events that had actually happened accurately up until verse 35, then attempting with only limited success to predict the future from verse 36 onwards. Rather, I think this vision is showing Antiochus's persecution as typical of what would happen for God's people throughout history. It takes on a larger than life character as it ends. It refers to a time of the end in verse 40. And by the time we get to chapter 12, verse 1, we're talking about the resurrection of the dead. So the message is that Antiochus will come to an end, that he won't succeed, in wiping out God's people, and yet ruler after ruler will rise up, will disrespect God, will bring suffering on God's people. Yet they'll all come to an end too. As we look at this chapter, as we try to find ourselves in it, the chapter seems to pretty much describe the actions of forces outside of God's people. God's people just seem to kind of take a beating in the middle without having much influence over it at all. There are a couple of little hints at what God's people are doing. Let's have a look at verses 32 to 35. The people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they'll fall by the sword. Some of the wise will stumble 
so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end. It seems that there's some resistance, but there's no call to rise up and fight back. There seems to be an emphasis on being wise, offering instruction, being refined, all the while being persecuted, being kicked like a, a football between powerful rulers, being killed. What comfort does this chapter hold? Is it merely a waiting game until the end? Well, we'll see in the conclusion to the vision next week uh, that there is much comfort, but there's also comfort here. If we zoom back out to how the vision began. So here we are, our last point, living in light of the unseen. You see, this whole message has been framed by chapter 10, uh, which was all about the messenger who was bringing it a messenger in the unseen world, who'd been battling against the Prince of Persia, who was going to battle against the Prince of Greece. See, while we focused in on what was happening physically to God's people, there was also an unseen conflict going on. Remember back to the, the character we saw at the start, the one who caused Daniel to spontaneously faint, a character with a belt of fine gold, a face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, a voice like the sound of a multitude a character who is extremely powerful and yet good. Let me remind you of our reading from the New Testament earlier, from Revelation. It's also a vision, but it's from the first century um, after Jesus, and it's written by one of his disciples, John. Here it is, Revelation 1.13. Someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. He had hair white like wool, eyes like blazing fire, feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, a voice like the sound of rushing waters, a face like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Sounds like a similar character to in Daniel. Now in Daniel, this, the character is, is never identified. So, I mean, we can't be sure, but in Revelation, the character is identified as Jesus, the one who was dead, but now is alive forever and ever. When we pull back the curtain, what we find is an awesome, powerful, magnificent character who is good. Unlike the others who oppress God's people, his end never comes. He is defined as the, the living one. He holds the keys to death and Hades. And yet what did that victory look like? How did that appear in the seen world? Well, the glorious one became a human being. He lived in a body. He was clearly in this seen reality. Yet he also seemed to have a behind the curtains view in his life. He had a relationship with his father, speaking to him quietly and sometimes out loud. At his baptism, a dove came down from heaven. Demons ran in fear from him. He reversed death. He raised his friend Lazarus from the grave. And yet he suffered. He gave himself to suffering. He died on a cross. At that same moment, behind the curtain, in the unseen world, he was defeating death itself. He was striking a fatal wound to the powers of darkness, and then he rose again. He had a renewed physical body that his disciples could see and touch, and yet he could be unrecognisable at first. He could appear in rooms and no one knew how. 
and he ascended to heaven, disappearing from the sight of his followers as they peered upwards. He lived in his life with that curtain pulled back. He brings the connection between the seen and the unseen realities. Thank God for his victory. Thank God that the living one will bring an end to suffering and death. And so while God's people are being kicked around by world powers, by tyrants, by bullies, while we face difficulties and struggles, we pull back the curtain. There's an unseen battle going on. Ephesians 6 tells us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Think of, of Daniel's life, for instance. We saw a couple of weeks ago the story of Daniel and the den of lions. In that story, we see uh, a ruler, Darius, who is intoxicated by his own grasp on power, persecutes Daniel for serving the living God. What we don't see, but what we know is going on, is a battle raging between good and evil. Uh, look back in verse 21 of chapter 10. It's the first year of Darius the Mede. That's when Michael and this other messenger were battling. And what do we see Daniel doing? Well, he remains not intoxicated by power. He rejects pride. He remains faithful to God and his promises. He prays. He calmly accepts persecution and entrusts himself to God. It doesn't look like a battle on the outside. It seems unimpressive, but that's victory in the unseen realm. We've seen that there will be battles for Daniel's people under the severe persecution that is going to befall them and that has befalled them. Under the various rulers, the kings of the north and the south, what should they do? Remain faithful, pray, accept persecution, entrust themselves to God. It seems like a defeat, but that is victory in the unseen realm. And there are battles for us today. Sometimes they're obvious, like when persecution comes like the Iranian husband and wife house church leaders who were arrested, sentenced to 10 and five years in prison respectively for participating in a house church and who have now fled the country. That looks like defeat from what we see, but in the unseen realm, that's faithfulness, that's victory. Or perhaps it's a little less obvious. Perhaps you're in a tough environment in your workplace or your school People are having a go at you. You're tempted to bite back, seek revenge. That's what's seen. Success looks like getting the last laugh, but that's defeat in the unseen realm. Sometimes the problem is forgetting that there's a battle at all. Life seems normal. Things seem comfortable. Yet what is unseen? Well, there's a battle still raging, a battle waged by the way that you resist temptation by the way you keep praying, by the way you trust God. So what do we do? Remain faithful, pray, accept persecution, entrust ourselves to God. Daniel got just a small insight into the unseen world. It overawed him, it terrified him. But we know that the most awesome figure in the unseen world, the ruler of it is Jesus Christ, and he has won the victory for all who trust him and he is coming back into our seen world soon.